how much do you think about life in heaven? When you consider that for a second, how much do you think about life in heaven? How much do you think about life in God's new creation that we know is promised to us in Christ Jesus? Would you say that, yes, it's something that I look forward to. I know that I'm looking forward to heaven, but I'm something I'm really going to worry more about once I get there. You know, I've got a lot to do here. And, you know, we've been told that old adage that, you know, to be too heavenly minded is to be no earthly good. I can't spend all my time thinking about heaven. Or perhaps you think a lot about eternity. Think about eternal life quite a bit. Maybe you've come face to face with many of the struggles in this sin-cursed world. And more and more, you're like, you know, there's a lot that I'm missing. There's a lot that I'm looking forward to. I really want to be in the presence of my Savior. But which is the right attitude for the believer? How really should we think about heaven? And now I'm sure that anything can be taken to an extreme. We, we're very sinful people. We can do that. We can take things to extremes. But I think the reality is for many of us is that we can consider eternity far too little. We think about what is awaiting us far too little. We often live like this world is our home. That this is our final home. Not that we're only here for a little while. Of course, what that allows us to do is we start to cling to the things of this earth because we grasp onto it, we have to have it, instead of realizing that this is really just a vapor and a wisp and there is something much more eternal, much more lasting awaiting for us. Now, a belief in the resurrection, a belief in eternal life in Christ is something that unites all Christians, all the different denominations, different churches, and we confessed this just a few minutes ago. In the last two lines of the Apostles' Creed, what do we confess? Is we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So one of our most important creeds that unites believers, we're confessing this life everlasting. This is not some cursory small doctrine. This is integral to who we are as Christians. But even as Reformed believers, we do distinctively believe this as well. We confess aspects of this in the very first question in our shorter catechism. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him. How long? Forever. Forever. Not just a day, not just a month, not just a thousand years, not just a million years. Forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is one of the very first things that we teach our children, isn't it? That they're going to be glorifying God and enjoying God for all eternity. That the chief end, the main purpose and thrust of their lives is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever, for as long as they live. And this means it's kind of important, isn't it? It's the purpose for existence. Well, what will it be like glorifying and enjoying God forever. What will that be like? Well, we only get glimpses into it, but one place we do see that is in Revelation chapter 22. So you can look there with me. I know that when I say open to the book of Revelation, that can get different emotions, right? Some people, as they turn to Revelation, there's lots of excitement. Some people, there's maybe confusion, possibly even worry. 
You should have seen the look on Pastor Holt's face when I told him, hey, I'm preaching from Revelation when you're gone. His eyebrows are about to come off of his face. You're preaching what? But once I told him where I'm preaching in Revelation, they came back down and all was okay. So I think we should all be relaxed, and as you should as well. Um, there's, there's lots to think about, to discuss, possibly even debate in the book of Revelation, but this is not one of those chapters. This is one of those chapters where all Christians, virtually all Christians, are united in what is going on here. And it's really one of those chapters that we should return to over and over because it provides so much insight and comfort and clarity. Now, before this chapter, a lot has went on. Of course, the 22nd chapter, there's a lot that's happened before that. Christ has returned. The dead have been raised. The final judgment has already been enacted. And God has created a new heaven and a new earth. And the old is gone and past. And in chapter 21, we start to get a glimpse into this New Jerusalem, this this holy city that awaits all who trust in Christ. We read about some of that earlier in our New Testament reading from Revelation chapter 21. And chapter 22 concludes that vision and really ends the visions in Revelation. Well, if you'll look with me to Revelation chapter 22, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God, And of the Lamb. In the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will No longer be any night, and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the comfort that we have in Christ, the hope that we have. Lord, would You give us a glimpse into what awaits those who are trusting in Christ? Would You teach us this morning? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, verse 1 tells us that the angel showed John these things. So we know that this is a vision. And what did John see in this vision? Well, I think there's three things that stick out to me. First thing he saw, he saw a river. The second thing he saw was a tree. And the third thing he saw was God's people and God's presence serving them. First, we're going to consider this river of the water of life. It's in verses 1 to the beginning of verse 2. Show me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, or bright or sparkling as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its streets. Now, I don't believe that it's controversial at all to say that Revelation is a highly symbolic book. Right? It's God's Word, it's true, but it's full of symbols, it's full of imagery, and that's the way in which these visions come across. So taking the book on its own terms, what do we see here? Well, in this New Jerusalem, there is a river that flows right down its main street, the street of gold, right? Now, I've lived in two cities that were on rivers in my day. I've lived in New Orleans and I've lived in Minneapolis. And both of those have a river that kind of flows through them. You might know what that is? Mississippi River, right? Even though they're very far apart, but the same river. And when I lived in New Orleans, I could walk to the levee, be right to the river, about three minutes. And, you know, it kind of divides, the Mississippi River kind of divides New Orleans. You have a west bank and east bank. 
So there's a sense in which you could say that the river goes through the city, but that's not really the picture here. Right? If when I was living in New Orleans, if there was ever a river going down the main streets, that meant that there was a flood, also known as a Wednesday. Now, it was the very design of New Jerusalem was a river flowing down the main street. This wasn't some side effect. This wasn't some accidental street flooding. It's the central defining characteristic. And this is not just any river, but it's the river of the water of life. It flows with living water. Now, notice as well where this river starts. Now, the Mississippi River starts, it's kind of debated, but you have lakes, you have streams, comes from all over, and eventually makes its way down out into the Gulf. And makes our beaches here very nice with all of its mud, right, that it throws out. But anyway, that's not at all how this river starts. Now, this river flows from the very throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, this is not the first time that we've seen a river that seems a lot like this. Now, near the end of Ezekiel, in chapter 47, he receives a vision. And in his vision, there's water trickling out of the temple. And that water that trickles, it becomes to grow more and more. It becomes a stream. And he talks about wading in the water where it goes up from his ankles to his knees. And eventually, it's such a great river that he can't even swim past it. It can't be traversed. Now, through this river, something kind of unexpected happens. Not only is it source the throne, but when it flowed into the Dead Sea, it started to give life. Now, the Dead Sea, this is the Dead Sea because nothing can live in it. It's very salty. It's 9.6 times saltier than the ocean. You'll see pictures of people floating in it with ease. Even I could float in the Dead Sea. But what's happening here is that this Dead Sea is now giving life. It is now giving life in there. It's full of great fish and life. But see, this river of living water, well, the point here is it gives life to everywhere that it went. Ezekiel 47.12 said, On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for their food, and their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because their water for them flows from the sanctuary, and their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Now, we'll get back into these trees because it sounds a lot like what we read in Revelation. But what's the point here? Out from God's sanctuary is coming life, is coming living water. Now, this is not exactly how Jews in Ezekiel's day would have thought about the sanctuary. Think about the strict requirements that they had to enter the temple. Think about the even stricter requirements to enter the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. There's only the high priest, certain times, certain cleansings, right? So when they thought about the holiness according to the law of Moses, it's very easy for clean things to become unclean. right? It's very easy for unclean things to tarnish the clean. We see this idea of holiness throughout the Levitical law, but really throughout the Old Testament. For instance, if you're clean, but you touch the dead body, what happens? You become unclean. If you wanted to enter the presence of God in the temple, you had to ritually Cleanse yourself. So we see this cleansing, this issue of holiness throughout. But see, this is very different. Instead of the dirty and the unclean things defiling this river, it gave life to everything that it touched. And it flowed from the very presence of God. We see this in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? 
When the woman who had an issue with blood, when she touched the hem of Jesus' garments, did He become unclean? No, she became whole. And when Jesus reached down and He took the hand of Jairus' dead daughter and raised her up, did He become defiled? No, she came to life. Life flowed through Him. Living water flowed through Him. Same idea when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we're made whole. Right? He transfers His righteousness, His holiness, all of His benefits, even His eternal life, He provides to us. He gives us living water. He gives us eternal life, which is in John 4 as well. Now in the New Jerusalem, this living water or water of life, it's flowing right down the middle of the center of the street in the city because the very nature of the city is eternal fellowship with God. It's pure. It's bright as crystal because it washes our sins away forever and will never be separated from Christ. So we have a river, but we also have a tree or possibly trees, plural. Look with me to verse 2. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So along this river, on either side of the banks, was a tree of life. John here, he's speaking of the tree as one but it seems like he's actively talking about several trees together as a collective, right? They're, they're the same kind of tree, produce the same kind of fruit. So it's a, a single tree in a manner of speaking. But that's not of super importance. But this does sound a lot like the trees on the banks of Ezekiel's river, doesn't it? But see, this tree doesn't just start in Ezekiel. It's not just the 47th chapter of Ezekiel where we find this tree. We have to go back even further. Actually, from Revelation 22, we have to go back about 1188 chapters, which gets you where? Genesis. Genesis 3. Yes, we all know how many chapters are in the Bible, right? I had to look it up. So anyway, okay. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, this is what we find. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 9. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God created Adam, and He placed them in this garden which He had created in Eden. And there He gave Adam all that he needed, right? But also in this garden, there were two special trees. There was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God's covenant that He made with Adam is really quite simple to understand. He was to be fruitful. He was to multiply, fill the earth with, we would say, sinless sons of God, to fill it with other image bearers. He was also to have a dominion over the earth. But there was one thing He couldn't do. It was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And upon eating of that tree, he would, he would get sick. No, he would die. He would die. So if he obeyed, he would earn eternal life. And we would say eternal life for him and all of his children. But if he disobeyed, it would result in death. But not only for him, but for all who came from him. And that, although he had all that he needed, right? He didn't want for anything. 
exactly what Adam did. He sinned. He sinned desiring to be like God. Now here's one of the results of their actions. Verse 22 and 24 of chapter 3 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, two things we see here. Sin keeps us from life, but sin also keeps us from God. Now, those are not mutually exclusive things, life and God together. But in their sinless state, Adam and Eve, they anticipated, they looked forward to an eternity of life with God. Eternal life with their created. But after the fall... They were driven out to work by the sweat of their brow, to bear children in pain, to die, and to return to the dust from which God created them. So they would die. But but their sin also kept them from God, didn't it? See that God drove them east of Eden. And then He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, last week, Pastor Holt talked about a place where we saw the cherubim. Does anybody remember where that was? Uh oh. The Ark of the Covenant, right? The Ark of the Covenant. So on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, we had cherubim on each side. And why were they there? Because who dwelt on the mercy seat? God. That was His Spirit. So they were there because that's where God's presence was. Now, in other visions of the throne of God, and we see in Ezekiel, Isaiah, even Revelation, there are angels, they're worshiping and they're guarding the throne of God. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that something similar is going on here. The angels are guarding the tree of life because in a sense they are guarding this life-giving presence of God, which they no longer have access to. This is a picture of the separation from God that Adam and Eve had experienced. Now thinking back to Westminster Shorter Catechism question 1, how does this apply to Adam? How is, how is Adam going to glorify and enjoy God forever if he has been banished from the garden and he's been driven from the presence of God? See, sin has severed the most essential relationship in his life, his relationship with God. Now, in some ways, we could really see the thrust of Scripture as God's plan to restore just that. Not only to restore Eden, but to restore it into something even greater, to have even greater fellowship with His creation. We see that even from the beginning of the promise in the garden of Genesis 3.15. see it all throughout. We see it in the types and the signs. We see it in the land in which He promised Abraham because Abraham was looking for the promise of a heavenly home. The tabernacle and the temple, they, they served as places where God dwelt. Certainly as we talked about last week, the mercy seat. All these things, we're seeing God coming be with His people. But then in Jesus Christ... We have God dwelling with His people. We have God the Son taking on flesh, tabernacling among us. And all that Jesus accomplished, it ushers in this new creation that we're studying this morning. He brings us into the new Jerusalem so that we can wade in the waters of life and freely eat from the tree of life. And in Christ Jesus, we'll experience God's life-giving presence for eternity. And this is not a probation any longer. This can never be broken. Well, who gets to come? 
In verse 14 of Revelation 22, we read this, Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. It's very clear here. All who have washed their sin-stained robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white may come. Though their sins were like scarlet, they've been made white as snow. And this is also encouragement here to cling to Jesus. There is only one way to enter into His presence, to eat of this tree of life. It is through Christ. There's nowhere else that we can go. So in Revelation, the author, John, he's telling us, stay true to Christ, cling to Christ, hold to Christ, because there's nowhere else we can go. We only have Jesus. See, Adam's sin caused him to be driven out of the garden. And in him, neither he nor his children could partake of the tree of life, but Jesus, the last Adam, has truly overcome. He has delivered all of his bride from their sin, all of their guilt, even all of their shame, and he brings them by his grace into communion with God. And in Christ, you can eat of the tree of life. In a certain sense, we could say that this is a new Eden, but it's really better, isn't it? See, we aren't going back to Eden. The end is actually much better than the beginning. John's vision expands upon what Ezekiel was telling us. Ezekiel said that the leaves of the tree are not just for healing, but they're for the healing of the nations. Right? This healing is not merely for the Jewish nation. It's not merely for the exiles in Ezekiel's day, but it is for all who trust in Jesus. Revelation 5.9 reveals this more to us. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God and your blood men from every tribe and nation and people and tongue. There is a, what we might call a global Edenic vision that God has always had. There's always been a whole world worshiping Him. We see this promises partially to Adam and to Abraham. We see this hope that he has of eventually having a people from all nations worshiping him who are saved by his son. Also notice that the tree of life produces 12 kinds of fruit each in its month. Of course, we know there's 12 months in a year. So what this is representing is there's a fullness, there's a completeness to this healing that is given to the nations. It talks about healing. What do they need to be healed from? How are they healed? Well, the most central healing is their healing from sin, right? Which mends this relationship that's been broken with God. It heals it and mends it for eternity. We can also extend this to the curse of sin, right? To its effects. The sin-cursed world in which we live often brings agony. It often brings heartbreak. It brings real physical and spiritual suffering. But the healing provided in Christ is really a reverse of this curse. Eternal life in Christ is not only an eternal life as in we don't die, but it's an eternal life without any of sin's effects in this new creation. It is all once again good. God will say it is very good once again. Revelation 21.4 really explains that for us as He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And it says those things won't last any longer, which means, yes, we live in a world that has mourning, crying, and pain. And that's true. 
So there's a lot of hope that we have. Have you ever met an older saint who is ready to go home? Not just ready to go home, their earthly home, but ready to go to their heavenly home. Perhaps their bodies are breaking down. Maybe their minds aren't working as well as they used to. They've had a lot of joy in this life, but to be honest, some suffering as well, and they are ready to rest in Jesus. The first time you hear that, and you sometimes hear it often, but it kind of puts you back in a shock. You're like, well, what do you mean? We can keep you alive longer. There's all sorts of things. There's lots of technology, but you know the reality is at one point, we're all going to go. And the more that we see what happens in this world, there's a sense in which we long for something more. So that's not a crazy thing to say. Actually, sometimes it actually makes sense to be, if you know what awaits you, to be in the presence of your Savior. Now, when people do die, we are sad, right? And that's normal. We're sad, sometimes even mad. And in a sense, we should be. You know, death, death is wrong. Death is not just part of the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way that God created it. There's something so out of whack in which God created humans. But we have hope. Not only is our God in control, but He's rescued us from death. Well, this brings us right up to verse 3. Verse 3 says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. So, verse 3 is continuing to tell us about this healing that flows from the tree of life. Since there's no longer any curse, well, there's also no threat of destruction for its citizens. Right? These pilgrims, regardless of what they have faced in their life, they finally can say, we're safe. We really, truly are home. Which gives a lot of comfort, right? There's hope for safety regardless of the trials that we face in this life. Now, we don't always have those promises. We don't know what's going to come, but we do know eventually we will be safe and secure. The inhabitants, these citizens, they're safe in the presence of God. They're safe from the curse of death. They're safe from any related suffering. And the redeemed are secure and will serve and worship God for eternity. They truly will glorify and enjoy God forever. Of course, this is not so for those outside of Christ. There's no hope for them, but those who have trusted, who have been redeemed, they'll glorify and enjoy Him forever. And that really starts to bring us to the culmination of this passage. God's presence, it fills this city to such an extent that there is no temple. In a sense, we could say the whole city is a kind of type of temple because God's presence is there, is everywhere. The throne of God and the Lamb is there and His people will see His face. It says they will see His face. Face to face with God. You know, I wish I had the words to describe how incredible this is, but I don't. I've never seen God. But if we think about the thrust of Scripture, there's really nothing more wonderful about heaven than this right here, that we will see and gaze upon God. We know that for all of redemptive history, no one could gaze into the glory of God and live. They'd be burnt up into His holiness. Even the angels around the throne are said to cover their faces, right? God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock so that the backside of his glory, whatever exactly that means, could pass by. 
Why? Because he would die if he didn't otherwise. But these saints will see him face to face, see him as he is. 1 John 3, 2 says, But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In the garden, Adam and Eve, they walked with God in the cool of the day. So they had a relationship with him. They knew him. And we're going to have this relationship, but even greater, even greater. These sanctified, these glorified saints will see his face. And this is really the greatest blessing that we could ever hope for, the greatest blessing of the coming age. Verse 4 also says that his name will be on their foreheads. His name will be on the foreheads. What's going on with that? Why the forehead? Well, for certain we could say the saints are so marked, they're so branded as his that there's no doubt who they belong to. They bear his name. They bear his image. They are citizens of his kingdom. There is no doubt who they are. They are completely secure in their creator. These are God's people. This is Christ's bride. They are completely secure. And he doesn't lose a single one of his own. When we ask ourselves, can we trust Jesus? Is that firm foundation? Yes, we can trust Jesus. He loses not a single one. But we also see a similar idea in Exodus. In Exodus, God instructed Aaron as the high priest who was to have a gold plate engraved with holy to the Lord, and it was to be fastened onto his forehead. And possibly what we also see here is that in the new creation, all the saints that are going to be serving God for all of eternity, that we are a kingdom not only of kings, but of priests. And finally, look at me at verse 5. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. In this new creation, we don't, we don't need a light because the glorious light of God Himself, His glory fills. It's really not that hard to think about this, thinking about even Moses, right? He, just from meeting with God, his face shone. They had to put a veil over his face because of God's glory reflecting. The real emphasis here, and especially on the erasure of the night, there's no more night. What's the idea? Is that peace has come. You know, we live in a world in which there is a night. Well, of course, yes, we live in a world where there's a night. It's about roughly 8 o'clock every night right now. It is a literal night. But there's also dark seasons too. There are other nights. There is pain. There is suffering. There are wars. There is death. There's disease. Especially for the original audience, there was persecutions. And what he's saying is that There is no darkness in the new creation because there is perfect peace. Whatever things we may be struggling with life, and I don't want to diminish any of them, whatever struggles you're going through with life, Jesus knows what they are, but He's also assuring to us that there is so much hope in heaven. There is so much hope in His new creation that those things won't even matter. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. No matter what may face us. We think about Paul, lots of things faced him. He said, those those aren't even a drop in the bucket. Those can't even be compared to what awaits us. And that's the same for us as well. Nothing which we could face even compares to what's in Christ Jesus. So we don't give up. We cling to Him. 
And He knows what we are going through. There's, there's also no need for the light of the sun in the new creation. There's nothing left that can hinder His glorious presence. He completely fills this new cosmos that is created. And in the Old Testament as well, we find copious prayers in the Psalms for God to reveal His presence, to shine the light of His countenance upon us. You see, in, for instance, in Psalm 31, 16, says, Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me your loving kindness. These prayers are answered here, yes and amen. In the glory of His presence, with the divine name on their foreheads, finally in the new creation, Aaron's ancient blessing, which you've heard many times, finds its perfect fulfillment. Numbers 6, 22-27, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the Lord of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. He said, So shall they put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Also in this existence, these blessed citizens of the New Jerusalem in union with Jesus their kings, not only worship as priests, but also reign as kings over the new earth forever and forever. Do you think much about the glory that awaits you? Have you unpacked your bags here on earth? You said, this is really where I'm going to put all my eggs in this basket. Or do we consider all that awaits us? It might change the way in which we live, knowing that we have so much hope, regardless of what God calls us to do. He's going to be faithful to us, but we have hope that awaits us. And also, do you know that you'll be there? How do you know? Have you trusted in what you've done? You've trusted in the things that you do, the places that you go? Or are you trusting in Christ alone? It's only those who trust in Christ who have this confidence. What does the gospel really mean for us? Well, one illustration of this is if you watch on the TV or have seen the videos from what happened in Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, there was flooding. There was people who were on roofs. And there's one picture that kind of stands out in my mind that there's a helicopter right over this man's roof, right? He can't get off. It's flying, hovering right over him. And see, a lot of religion of this world are like that helicopter. They're above him. He's got to make his way up there. But see, this guy was never going to make it. And so what they had to do is they had to get down that rope, come down off that helicopter, and lift that man up. And that's what Christ, in some ways, did for us. He came down for us. He paid the price for us. He saves us, and He brings us home, and we'll reign with Him forever. Brothers and sisters, if you're looking to Christ, this incredible passage is true for you. And in Christ Jesus, you will glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 10 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.